Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the wonderful Petra Boynton. We're talking about bullying in academia, what it looks like, what you might do if it's happening to you or if you see it happening to somebody else. I usually say I hope you enjoy this episode. That feels the wrong thing to say for this subject matter, but I do hope that you find it useful. Hello, Petra. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I, I have said just before we got on, I was um, confessing to you that I have been stalking you by reading your brilliant book, brilliant, brilliant book. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to have all the details. I'm sure we're going to kind of touch on stuff that's in the book in the interview, and I'm going to have all the details in the show notes. Um, but the kind of the, the thoughtfulness and the wisdom that you bring and also the hard-won personal experience that you bring to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I think it's going to just help so many people and I'm just so delighted that you are talking about these things and and sharing that information and so thank you so much for um, coming here to to talk to us about it. Oh thank you for having me. So as I say we're going to we're going to get into talking about bullying in particular, bullying in academia in particular uh, in in a minute but first of all, I'm going to ask, as I do with everybody, if you to just talk a little bit about your own story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my PhD is still one of the things I'm most proud of achieving. Um, like probably lots of people listening, I wasn't tipped to be an academic success. I was told to leave school at 16 and that I really shouldn't continue in education. Um, it's since been discovered I've got a learning disability, but that wasn't picked up while I was at school. I did my PhD in applied human psychology, and I was looking at the impact of sexually explicit media on attitudes and behaviour. Um, and at the time, I couldn't get funding for that. There'd been a big government inquiry that had concluded that this wasn't an area of interest. And so I kind of studied it at the wrong time, uh, if you like. And so I self-funded my study. I did jobs like cleaning and I worked as a night care attendant. And later on, I got a lecturing job and that helped offset my fees. Um, my first year of my PhD, I think, was really a very successful year. I was, Although I was self-funding, I was very pleased to be doing it. I felt it was laying to rest quite a lot of demons that I had around, you know, the fact that I wasn't clever and I shouldn't be there. And uh, I bought my first home. My fiancé and I bought a home. And I had a, a life plan that my life plan was by the time I was 25, my PhD would be done. I would have an academic job and I would have started a family. And I think everybody listening knows that life never goes to plan. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yes. It doesn't, does it? It just no, does it not doesn't. Go to plan. And I know we're always encouraged to have you know, these life plans and goals. And even when you go for interviews, it's like, what's your five-year goal? And and it would be lovely if this stuff worked, but it, 
doesn't at all. So in my second year of my PhD, I, I went part time because trying to uh, I was living in Brighton. I was commuting to Birmingham where I was doing my PhD and I was also working with all these other jobs and it was exhausting. So I went mm. part time and on route traveling between Brighton and Birmingham, I helped somebody who was sick and I caught hepatitis A um, from them. And it you know, it's not a great thing to have, but in most cases, it's something that, that you know, passes. You're ill for a while and it passes. In my case, it led to complications that were misdiagnosed. And I was sick for most of my 20s. Um, and for reasons I still don't understand, uh, people often are surprised when I say this, but I still don't understand. My relationship broke down uh, during that time. Um, I don't think it was because I was sick, but I don't think being sick helped. Uh, it probably was a lot to do in the PhD. Um but I had to move out. I miscarried uh, my first miscarriage during this time and I moved out and I obviously lost my home and my fiance and my pets. Um, and all of those were hard losses, I think, to have. Mm. Um, but I you know, was committed to doing a PhD and being truthful, I didn't know really what else to do. Um, I think when you're sad and grieving and really lost, mm. you cling mm. to something. And for mm. me, you know, that was a PhD. It was an identity. It was more mm. of an identity than being sick, although I was that too. Um, it was more of an identity than being disabled, although I was that as well. It was something that I could talk about that I didn't feel carried sort of shame and stigma with it, um, mm. along with it. Mm. Um, so I kept going. I had minimal supervision. Uh, I think that's a lot of a case that people who are self-funding report. Mm. And I had several periods of time off because I had to have operations and I was sick. Uh, so obviously that affected my finances. Uh, you know, I was already in debt because I was self-funding, but I got more in debt because I had to keep moving to find better accommodation and also to just try and survive. Um, I had a teaching job, but it wasn't really enough. And of course, it didn't pay when I wasn't working. It was sessional work. Um, so if I didn't turn up to work, I didn't get paid. Um, as I got into my writing up period, actually, things seemed a bit more settled. I was actually feeling a little better health wise and I was really getting on OK. Um, but unfortunately, at that time, as I think lots of people will recognise, um, my department imploded. It was nothing to do with me, um, but my supervisor went one way and my department went another way. And the place where my PhD was housed was in a different place again. So I had the choice that I could stay in a funded job but not do the PhD, or I could keep doing the PhD within the doctoral programme, but there was no longer any work. And I think I had six weeks, five or six weeks to find another job, um, which I did. So I ended up moving um, again, and I was living outside London, working in London and studying in Birmingham, uh, while so writing up my PhD. Um, and I navigated that by getting a job where I could do compressed hours. So I worked from Monday to Thursday, in the paid job and then I wrote up from Friday to Sunday and I did that for a year and then finished and submitted my PhD um, and I think I, I often refer to my PhD as my anchor it's the thing that kind of I held that held me steady um, but I think anchors also weigh you down and being really truthful sometimes I look back and think it might have been better if I quit actually that I did something else a different job but in a way, it also fitted with me being ill in that I had sort of some leeway, some things I could still be working on and some sort of, although it was sessional work, it was also flexible work um, that perhaps in a full-time job would have been harder. 
but it wasn't easy. And uh, I did win, actually, uh, a Cosmopolitan magazine award for education, for my services to education for uh, all of these struggles. And that was nice. But I also look back sometimes and think, I have no idea. I don't know how I did it. I really don't know how I did it. But I think it has meant that it's made me, I hope, a much better supervisor and that I do my best at all times to pass on information to postgrads now because I think you know I know how hard it can be oh my goodness so I said at the beginning this is hard won knowledge um and what a story um and this sense of lots of common themes coming through but you get you've had all of them <laughs> so all of lots of people have difficulties but there was so many so much for you um and the fact that now you you want to address these issues some of which are systemic um that uh to really make sure that people are well supported um as they go forward um and but let's just take a moment to recognize that that cosmopolitan award was absolutely deserved and i think oh, well it just this sense of that your your insight and empathy and that's what really comes through in the in the book that actually you, that experience it could it could have gone many different ways but for you it it seems to have taken you to a place of real empathy um and this impulse to make things different for other people so they don't have to go through it. So let's let's then address um, this issue of um, bullying. And this is this isn't this isn't easy to um, go into because it's not talked about. It's endemic, I think, in academia. There's a lot of it that goes on. Um, but we don't really talk about it very much. And I'm really grateful that you're you are articulating and um, signposting people for help. So, can you just tell us a little bit about the, the work that you've done around um, uh, bullying in academia and and what is what's going on out there? What are the common things? Yeah, I mean, as as you sort of heard when I was relaying um, my my PhD experiences there, that the, my I suppose my first experience of it was witnessing it happening to other people, mm. and I think that's very true. I think depending on which research you read, it's anything between forty and seventy five percent of us have either directly witnessed or know it goes on in academia, and it seems to be higher in academia than lots of other places. But certainly my first experience was watching other people, um, quite senior people, interestingly. We often think of it as sort of senior staff bullying junior staff. And I think for postgrads, that can be a, a, a definite worry and, and something they go through. But I was really watching people at a very high level discredit and tear into each other and it was quite frightening actually to see and I think we often see that now in that people are thinking about well why am I doing a PhD when I'm seeing on social media or in the news these terrible stories of what academia is really like and and maybe I don't want to go there after all so I think that was my first glimpse of it is witnessing it sort of all falling apart and that rapid shift of me having to go and find a job somewhere else and then I went and worked in an NHS uh, research job and I was bullied in that job 
Um, and it was not pleasant. And then I went into another job, which was within a university, but on a healthcare project, because I'd sort of defected from psychology to healthcare by then. And I couldn't really believe it. But actually, yet again, I wasn't the only person being bullied. But in that department, the the whole place was really um, a, a real problem with bullying in that the, 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 the tactic of bullying in that place was that um, people were almost on a rotor. So you could be in favour one week, but the next week you wouldn't be. And people kind of played off against each other. And that was really unpleasant. And so I think um, around that time, I was doing a lot of training on safety for researchers because a lot of my work is on sensitive topics. And people would ask me to come and do training on um, how to stay safe. But at the end of every of one of those classes that I did, somebody, often more than one person, would, would come up privately or email me and say, but actually the danger I'm facing isn't out there in the field. It isn't out there in my project. It's in my department. That's where I'm being racially abused. That's where the homophobic abuse is. That's where I'm being mocked or overworked or, um, you know, almost like forced to fail, you know, set up for a failure. Um, all sorts of things, really very childish behaviours. Quite often people would report that was still very debilitating, of sort of mocking and name calling uh, through to hiding equipment or, or actually shoving. And, and, and aggressive behaviour. And so I think I changed the training, first of all, so it was accommodating bullying. But then in 2005, I think it was, I did a survey with the Times Higher and we looked at the sort of prevalence across the UK of bullying and that showed that it was really um, ridiculously high. I mean, there's always the risk, I think, with these surveys or any kind of research on this that you get people wanting to talk about being bullied and therefore it will inflate it somewhat but even so I think that that study after study internally by universities and externally keeps showing us that bullying is a problem in academia all over the world so what I mean just again it's it's just it's breathtaking and so um troubling that this does go on and if you mention it in conversation people will have stories to tell you guarantee we'll have stories to tell you um so what what can we do about it and I, I think I suppose I'm thinking systemically of course we need to do something about it we need to address it and I suppose I'm thinking for individuals who might be listening to this do you have some thoughts and advice on what people might be able to do yeah absolutely I mean I think if you're I'll start with if it's happening to you I think mm. and I'll do if you're witnessing it because there's sometimes it overlaps in the mm. But I think that if it's happening to you, I think the first thing is that you get a support system around you. I think this sort of life raft in the title of the PhD life raft is is the key here in that you need your life raft there. You need a support network. And it doesn't have to be people who are doing a PhD or in your department or colleagues or anything else. It might be friends and family. And their job isn't just to support you through the bullying but it's to provide an alternative because I think when you are being bullied you you become so muddle-headed about it people talk to me about feeling like their head's full of spaghetti um, or foggy that they can't work out what they're supposed to be doing um they can't stop thinking about it they will overwork because you know one of the things is is if you're being picked on you're so frightened of, of either it being true the awful things you're being told or that you are in some way going to lose your PhD or your job or whatever it is, that you'll overwork to compensate for it. You're almost trying to not suck up to the bully, but sometimes that it can be that, but it's much more just like 
just self-preservation. So your family and your friends and this network that you build, and it can be online or offline, are the people who are there on your side. They're there to distract you, that you're not just thinking about this all the time, that you've got other things, whether it's a film or chatting to somebody or a, a dinner together or something that's taking you away from that kind of horror and hostility that you're living with. I think it's also noting, and maybe it's through a diary or, or some other way of, of how you're physically and mentally affected. You know, it might be your appetite or your sleep or your mood. Um, you might find that you're being really grumpy with people or very tearful, or you feel like you can't bear going into work. It's interesting that the symptoms of burnout and the reactions of bullying are very common. Uh, so noticing that, I think, would be would be important. Um, joining a union, and that might be within your university. It might be forming a union. It might be joining a support network through maybe a professional body or organisation, depending on where you are. So, for example, if you're doing a PhD and you're working in the NHS, which often has overlaps in both academic bullying and NHS bullying, that you find other um, professional organisations and, and unions to join there. A lot of them have got really good practical advice. Some of them have got helplines, and we'll share all of that in the notes, that if you are affected, there are places you can turn to. Um, I think also alongside that is just giving yourself permission to feel what you're feeling. And that might be anger, it might be fear, it might be all sorts of things. The next thing I think, and the reason I've mentioned having all of these systems in place first is that you need energy and, and some level of comfort to do the next bit. But the next bit is the brave bit. And it's about gathering um, receipts. It's getting evidence. So that could be that your bully has emailed you something awful or that they've said or done something or they've sabotaged your work or that you've got proof of stuff they're doing collating that is important you might not feel able to and again it might be a friend or family member does that job for you um i would say going and looking at legislation and and um you know all the legals here your university will have ethical guidelines it will have um codes of conduct it will have professional guidelines it will have supervisory guidelines your doctoral program or office or grad school school or whatever you call it, will have information on what your supervisor or your colleagues or your peers should be doing. And I'm saying that because quite often we tend to think about the bullying happening from a supervisor to supervisee, but actually it can be the other way around. Students can bully supervisors. Supervisors can be bullied among the academic system. Uh, other people working in your organisation, it might be the person who's doing your admin or the cleaning or catering, may also be being bullied. And it can be peers bullying one another. So I think however it's coming at you, noting what the professional codes of conduct within your university are, and if they don't exist, other universities have them, uh, is really important. You can also draw on library, study skills, disability office, other places that might exist, chaplaincy, and you can use them strategically. Some might be the place that you offload and feel. Others are where you're actually gathering records and information about what's going on. Your doctor um, might be able to help in terms of if you need sort of signing off or any kind of, of, of evidence about it affecting your physical or mental health basically as much information you can gather is important and also witnesses if you can get witnesses so much the better brilliant advice there and I think this kind of this key thing about clarity and perspective which of course is so difficult 
in those kind of traumatic situations because they literally do affect your brain so that as you said you can't necessarily think clearly um and you can't process things um maybe in, in as, as you would normally do before this traumatic encounter and so th- this sense of having people that can offer you perspective and then also that that information gathering the information brilliant yeah, yeah. and, and Sorry, I was going to say, it's important to also note the other thing that you've got in your favour is that graduate programmes want you to finish. Yes. They want you to finish. And also, if your employer is helping with this or you're part funded by your employer or your funding body, they also want you to finish. People have to explain why you have not made progress. So I think that's why looking at what is the supervisor-supervisee relationship, what is the expectations of what your um, PhD should involve, what is the standard you should be working at, where is there help available? For example, you know, if you are struggling with particular areas, is there extra help you can have? And I think the point you just made there, Emma, about perspective is really good as well because sometimes I think and this is not in any way to dis- sort of discredit people who are being bullied or to sort of diminish what they're going through. There is a confusion and an understandable, unhappy confusion between where you need to have some kind of performance review or feedback or suggestion that your work is not good enough. And my work wasn't good enough during my PhD. A lot of the time, you know, it needed improving. And I didn't like that. You know, I still don't, if we're honest. (laughs) You know, if we're really honest, none of us really like that. And there's ways in which that can be delivered. And I think sometimes people get confused between unpleasantness and and temporary, uh, you know, awkwardness or or unpleasantness that, that is actually part of the process or difficulty or challenge. And actually what is bullying, which is more systematic, it's designed to stop you working. I think there's a difference between being told something to improve your work, even if you don't like to hear it, and something that's actually really destroying you. It's harming your confidence. It's hurting you. So I do think having, again, looking at uh, working with other people, with peers, getting some perspective gives you a sense of actually, you know what, actually, this is not okay. You know, there's a difference between my friend who has a supervisor who sits down and talks them through stuff. And yes, they come out thinking, oh, I've got to do that rewrite. And I really didn't want to have to go back to the literature. And oh, I'm feeling further behind than ever. But I can do it because we've actioned the, what we're going to do next. And somebody who had half an hour being screamed at, you know, it's it's I mean, I've made two very big differences. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's often not easy to tell. And, and yeah. I think a perspective really helps. Yes, yes. And then you said, so that's if that's happening to you. And then you said about the, the sense of, well, I wonder if you have any thoughts of if it's happening to somebody else. Yeah. And I think, again, this is where we need to be brave. So I think because we know bullying is so common, I think I think it's something like, I think it's the nature survey that found it was like something like one in five PhDs. It's, it's a huge number are, are, are directly reporting bullying. And that's before we come on to the sort of, I think, the greyer area where it probably is also bullying, but they may not notice it or perhaps don't want to say it. And, and I think we have sort of the interesting thing is when when you research or teach on bullying and uh, as I do, uh, among other things, it's the only area. It's really interesting. I do lots of other sensitive topics and people never, ever 
say, oh, well, you know, the participants are, are exaggerating or lying. So, for example, a lot of the work I do is on, on um, pregnancy and baby loss. And no one has ever said to me there, well, those people are just exaggerating about how sad they feel after their losses. No one's ever done that. And I don't think they would because it would be outrageous. But when it's bullying, there's often a sense of saying, oh, you know, it's exaggerated or it's not really true or these people are oversensitive. And it means that a lot of people who are already minoritized, um, you know, people of the global majority, people who are international students, disabled people will often not report it, actually, because they are scared of being kicked off their course or, yeah, or yeah. further abuse or that perhaps they already feel like they are asking for a lot and they don't want to talk about it anymore. I mean, I, I certainly remember when I was sick during my PhD, that awful feeling of people saying, how are you? And you truthfully wanting to say, I'm really not well, but their eyes starting to glaze over or them sort of, you know, even rolling their eyes and sighing and you feeling like you can't say it. So I, I think that that we as bystanders or sometimes people call them upstanders uh, need to play a role we know it's a problem we hear it's a problem we've probably seen it actually and we often don't want to do anything about it because understandably who wants to be next you know when you witness somebody being shouted at or crying in in you know in their office or or you know that you know somebody's having to take an extension um you know or, or even that you hear they're being bad mouthed which is a thing that bullies often do is that they'll say that the person it's not them the bully it's the um the victim who's the one at fault you don't want to be in that category of course you don't but the more we don't stand together the more this will continue. And in fact, the biggest solution, the easiest solution we have is making this something that is not tolerated. Now, we might feel like it's a hopeless situation, but I can tell you in the last five years, things have dramatically improved. Not perfect at all, but funding bodies have started to pay attention. And it's mainly because people aren't completing, but they're paying attention. A lot of big uh, organisations, research organisations, um, academic publishers are also talking about it. And social media has made a big difference in that now we can flag it up when it's happening. Um, it relies often on people who are have left academia and no longer work in a university or who are in very senior positions to do it but all of us can do it. So that was a very long-winded introduction to say, what can we do? We can notice, uh, we can use what they call the five Ds uh, of, of being an active bystander. So that means, uh, you know, the first thing you might do is describe it when you see it happening. If you see somebody acting in a bullying way, you call it out. You either call it out directly to the bully so you say, that's not all right. OK, you know, we don't shout in that meeting, you know, in a conference where somebody started to sort of do the more of a question and the comment. And it's, oh, being, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we've all been there when it's actually getting quite spiteful. You yes. know, actually, somebody says, hang on, this isn't OK. Now, a victim yeah. often won't because they're too frightened or they're just yes. totally taken aback by how horrible it is. Yes. But if we're all sitting there, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, gosh, I ought to tweet this is terrible. Don't just tweet that it's terrible. Stand up and say this isn't okay this is not all right you can build in codes of conduct where we actually say directly this is what we will and won't discuss this is what bullying is and this is what we won't tolerate bullies really really rely on us you know you think of academia as the place of discourse and debate and intelligent people being able to describe the most complicated things and yet you tell me that we can't actually say in an agreed upon way what bullying is and that we're not going to accept it of course we can 
We absolutely can. The reason bullies don't want us to is because it catches them and holds them accountable. So we can document from the outset within our departments, within our programmes, within our events, within everything, what we are, what bullying is and what we're not prepared to put up with and what the consequences will be. And that makes it easy for everybody because, you know, and people might moan about the fact that they can't say or do anything anyway these days, but good, actually, because screaming at people at events or touching people up or groping people yeah. is not acceptable behaviour in any anywhere. It's not OK. So I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. I'm on a rant now. No, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm, 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 yes. Keep ranting. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is so important. It's so, so important. So important. And I think I think we're almost frightened to sometimes say this, that actually we can be quite bold and say we're going to do this thing. So the first D, you know, in our, our, our D's of bystander intervention is that we are directly saying what is and isn't OK. And then, you know, we can delegate. We can delegate other people to help. We can have um, people within the department, our union reps maybe, but also people that you can go and talk to. It could be a buddy system or a friendship system or a peer support system. It can be regular meetings. It's places where we meet and gather now, the pandemic has made this harder, although online spaces are thriving, where you have to be careful because, as I've mentioned with badmouthing, quite often victims are made out to be, you know, incompetent or awful or terrible by bullies. And if we immediately jump in with that, sometimes we get the wrong person. Sometimes we're there joining in with bullying and actually we miss the person who's directing us is the bully. So we mm. need to be careful, but we certainly can delegate in terms of ensuring lots of people are responsible. And if we're witnessing some active bullying, that actually maybe somebody goes grab security or somebody goes and sits with the victim and somebody else is documenting it and somebody else is actually talking privately or publicly to the to the bully that, that, that we know our roles that we know what to do and again if there's lots of us doing it you suddenly feel much braver if it's just you doing it it's scary but actually lots of us doing it is important and you notice with these things they're action-based a lot of the time we can you know signal it and I think this came out a lot um, with sort of Black Lives Matter that, that universities and individuals in universities you know filled their social media with black squares but nobody changed anything about bullying or you can wear a safety pin to show you're an ally but then you're in a public place and somebody's being a, a victim of, of, of homo homophobic or biphobic or transphobic abuse and you don't say anything you know just signaling you're the safe person doesn't make you a safe person if you don't act like the safe person. But doing that on your own is hard, especially if you're already minoritized. And I think sometimes the things that we might do to call in help, for example, security, if that's actually going to aggravate or inflame the situation. So, for example, you've got somebody bullying um, a person we've we've seen with, with cases where a white supervisor's bullied a black uh, student and security has been called to tackle the white supervisor, but the student's been the one that's ended up becoming, um, you know, either uh, pushed off campus or, or in other ways um, restrained or, or challenged or, or, or other abuse. It, you, We need to sort of sort this out at all levels, really, that if we're going to stand together, that's great. But if we call on help, is the help going to be helpful as well? So when we're delegating, we need to think about it. The other thing we can do is distract. So quite often you can say to the victim, oh, oh gosh, there's a phone call. Can you come with me? 
um, and get them away from the person who's shouting or the person who's saying unpleasant things. Or you've got a meeting and someone suddenly started being really personal or passive aggressive. And we all kind of recognize this stuff, actually. Um, or if we don't all recognize it, enough of us do. If you're in a meeting, especially if you're feeling quite junior and powerless and somebody's actually being unpleasant or talking over or taking credit, you can say, oh, um, I just need to go and get the coffee. Can someone help me with that? But by the way, I'm sure that was so-and-so's work you're chatting about there, you know, and you've deflected and you've distracted and quite, and they may not be thrilled that you've done it, but you've done it. And, you know, you might be shaking and anxious, but you did the thing. So I think there's some advice I've seen on, on bullying that says you must always stay with a victim and you must always shout and speak out. Actually, I don't know that that's good advice because sometimes if you're in a more vulnerable position than they are, you could actually become in very much at risk. So when we talk about, you know, doing first aid, the first thing you check is that you, are safe within the environment before you go to give help you don't run into a burning building for example you would try and get the fire brigade to help you it's in this case you might call for reinforcements you might do something small but you're going to do something even if it's documenting or keeping receipts I know a lot of victims do complain about the fact that people will sit through a meeting where it's quite obvious that bullying has happened or they're in a lab situation where there's endless bullying or there's field work and there's a problem and someone will say afterwards oh gosh that was awful or they'll see something happen on social media and they'll privately message and say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear what you've gone through, but they don't do something publicly. You need to get together with other people and collectively do something publicly um, in a way that doesn't make the victim at more risk and in a way that doesn't actually make it all about you. Um, it's going to hold the victim, the, the bully, accountable. And that brings us on to, I think, the, the next D, which is that you document everything. You take records, you, you, you make a note of what that is. And you're quick to step in if you spot something and to stop it. But also you don't, because you've stopped it, just ignore it. Um, you know, if you caught somebody shouting at a colleague or if you've discovered that a supervisor is persistently undermining one student in front of another or they're um, denying accommodations to a disabled student, you can talk to them about it, but you don't leave it there. Um, and I think for any of us who are in a position to do something with our status, with our power, that we make the most of that as much as we can. Um, I think that the thing to note with all of this is that bullying, it, it breeds fear. You know, it frightens us. It frightens us into being silent. And and it, the victim, I know, is being, you know, someone who's experienced bullying, is you're exhausted and you, you haven't the energy to fight it. And you're frightened if you do fight it that quite often bullies do threaten you. They don't just do a sort of arbitrary thing. Uh, I think a lot of us know of academic bullies who've absolutely destroyed careers. Um, and so what tends to happen is people will take a demotion or they'll move sideways or they'll go quietly or they'll leave for another job or they'll leave academia completely rather than confront so the final thing to remember is universities absolutely hate bad publicity and they really hate it at a point of time when they're trying to deliver on what they consider products products are degrees um, and you know I'm not saying I agree with this I'm saying this is how they they see themselves so what they want is the glossy project to have finished and lots of press coverage what they want is for people to be processing across the stage, getting their degrees and paying lots of money to do so and lots of social media. What they want is lots of students coming to their university. What they don't want is people to know, you know, what it is actually like to study there. They don't want the funders to know that actually in this particular lab, 
everybody is terrified. Uh, they don't want people to know that in this particular department, the head of department is stealing everybody else's work or that, you know, there's a sexual predator in the building. They don't want to know that. So again, while being careful, and I think while going through procedures, start to gather the evidence, start to work within the systems. And if those systems are not going to assist you, then you think about working collectively and publicly. Amazing. Amazing. Lots there, lots there. And just to, to, you know, people, you don't have to do it all at once. (laughs) It's a process and thinking through what the the kind of the best next step for you in your situation. Um, Thank you so much, Petra. Um, I'm going to, I kind of feel, because I always ask for a top tip and there's just, there's so much that you've already given to us. I wonder if, if there was one thing that you'd like people to take away from this, what would it what would it be? Is that too unkind a question? No, it's it's a good question, and it's it's at the risk of sounding a bit like Jerry Springer from years back. It's that the tip with with this is you look after yourself and each other. It's it's that's the biggest thing we can do is care for ourselves first, and then care for one another. Amazing. Amazing. And um, I do just want to mention your book again, because it is so great. I'm not on a commission or anything, people. I just think it's brilliant. It's called Being Well in Academia, Ways to Feel Stronger, Safer and More Connected. And it's got it's really it's got really practical ideas, loads of resources in. So I really would recommend it to people. And I'll put the details in the show notes. Thank you so much, Petra, for your time and for all the work that you're doing, because it's brilliant. Um, and thank you all for listening.